Thank you. Thanks for the welcome. Thanks for the singing. Thanks for the brass instrument. <laughs> uh, is that a sawing off trombone you've got there, brother? <laughs> Very good. Um, well, hello everyone. It's good to see you. Um, brothers alluding to our problems. We've it's been quite busy recently. I've been preaching again. I'm back. I had three Sundays free. Would you believe that? And then uh, we were back on the the trail again. And last weekend I was away with a church weekend, away up to some place I'd never heard of, and. Uh, it was a, a trial getting there, way up at Loch Tay, Ardenneog or something, <laughs> I forget what it was, but we had a good time with the church there, and uh, I'm writing three articles in the Reformation just now for a magazine down south, and uh, I had a funeral at two days' notice, there's this undertaker who keeps forgetting to ask people to conduct funeral services, and I may one, get one or two days' notice had a 42-year-old whose grandfather organized the funeral. The grandfather was 88 years old, and he organized the funeral. We have a problem in our own family that our son-in-law's nephew, um, we made a series of wrong choices. He wasn't a wee innocent, but three weeks past Friday, he was stabbed in the back in Postal Park and died, bled to death, age 20. And the, the, the boy who did it, it was a single stab wound. Uh, the young man who did it, he fled, and the police said there'll be no funeral till we capture this guy. So it could have gone on for months, but we prayed that the Lord would uh, help the police and they caught this guy last Friday, um, a week past Friday. So there's hope of some sort of clearance from the thing in the next few weeks. And Janet, our daughter, has been terribly affected by it. If you could please pray for Billy and Janet. <clears throat> that would be a great help to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this precious time we've had together already, and we praise you for the sense of your presence with us. Pray as we open your word that you will open it to us, and that your mighty Holy Spirit, who is the true author of Scripture, may be the interpreter of its meaning to each of our lives and needs for your glory's sake. Amen. Going to read in Genesis, the book of beginnings, uh, chapter 11, and the last verse through into chapter 12. And I'm going to do the next week's, I'm coming, a series of uh, looks at Old Testament characters. An old man, Abraham, a young man, Joseph, a great leader, Moses, and uh, Israel's greatest king, David, and uh, perhaps a great prophet, Jeremiah. So here we are on uh, the tiptoe of expectation <laughs> with Abraham. <clears throat> Genesis 11:32. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord 
had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. There's quite a bit of hesitancy about looking at the Old Testament and taking it seriously. Some of the older critical textbooks just treat it as a, a crowd of fairy tales. In fact, there are some folk who treat the New Testament as the same. A man said to me in a, a minister's fraternal, do you believe all that stuff in the Gospels, George? I said, every word of it, you know. <laughs> and he said, I don't think we've got one word that Jesus spoke in the Gospels. He said, but here's how he described his congregation. But these daft old bats I minister to expect me to teach and speak as if it were true. He said, so I give them a quarter of an hour of what they would like to hear, and the rest of the week's my own. That was his standing in the Christian ministry. And he left to become a lecturer at New College Edinburgh, preparing folk for the ministry. And he left there to become principal of a college in Australia. And he flung him out for his radical views, and he came home with his between his legs, I'm happy to say. <laughs> So, there's hesitancy about the Old Testament. It's, it's rather like a salesman standing up at a sales conference and debunking the product, talking down the product that they're supposed to be presenting to folk. So that what's happened in our country is that in the theological institutions of our country, the Bible's been undermined and degraded and mocked, and the people don't believe in the product anymore. And that's sad. Higher critical thought says that man is the measure of all things, including the contents of the Bible. Higher critical thought says that the Enlightenment and the evolutionary theories of the 19th century and the theories of development and uh, implicit in Darwinism um, have made the Bible a book under suspicion. And miracles are denied. There's no such thing as a miracle, they say. And prophecy is written off as a, a later editorial layered piece of writing. For example, there are three Isaiahs. Did you know that? There's one called Isaiah of Jerusalem who wrote chapters 1 to 40. Uh, and then there's chapter 40 to 55, Deutero Isaiah wrote that, 
And then there's a third Isaiah who wrote chapters 56 to 66. And you've got to uh, take out the layers and assign any prophecies to a later editorial hand. Are you with me so far? <laughs> uh, another thing is that um, under the leadership of a wonderful theologian in many ways, a wonderful brain, one of the, the great minds of the 20th century, Carol Bart, he said, what we have in the Bible is revelatum. He said it's like uh, the driftwood left on the shore. What we have is a record of like driftwood on the shore, the, the evidence of peoples in the past who got in contact somehow with God, and we've got the residue of that. But it's not living, it's not a living word unless um, God the Holy Spirit, if you like, bores a hole through the top of your head and reveals himself to you in special revelatio. He talks about revelatum and revelatio. But you know, we have encouragement because not only did the 19th century produce these um, contrary theories to scripture, but the 19th century opened up, for example, the world of the Old Testament in the work of the archeologists like uh, Jean-Francois Champion, um, who was in the aftermath of Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. Napoleon took with him in 1799, some of you may remember it, um, <laughs> he took a team of specialist scholars with him. And one of them, uh, one of his captains, found a, a piece of stone with writing on it. And the writing was in three different languages, Greek in the top, Demotic, e Egyptian in the middle, and hieroglyphic in the bottom. And they were able to uh, decipher the two languages at the bottom from their knowledge of uh, Greek in the top. And they opened up a whole treasure trove of our understanding of ancient Egypt, for example. And then, uh, in the period between the two world wars in the 20th century, the Americans shelled out a lot of money to fund expeditions to the Middle East. And um, quite a few English folk were involved too in, in that. Um, a man called Sir Flinders Petrie. Have you ever heard of him? How can one fail with a name like Sir Flinders Petrie? And he was, a, he was the man who uh, started the, the science of stratification of ancient sites. Um, I used to work for the Scottish Farmers Dairy Company. And on a Saturday morning, the boys could buy a cake. You could buy a cake, a layer cake, and the top layer would be icing, and the, the next layer would be sponge, and then there would be cream, and then if it was a, an Albert cake, it was a pastry bit in the base, and you could work through the layers as you ate your cake. Well, what, what uh, <coughs> Sir Flinders Petrie did was he learned to trench, to dig trenches in ancient sites and examine all the layers and interpret the history of that city, for example, from the layers he had unearthed. Um, if it was a, a layer that was uh, dust and no uh, other evidence, then it had lay in unoccupied at that period. If it was water laid clay, as if, as if um, 
another guy, uh, <laughs> Sir Leonard Woolley, how can one fail with a name like Sir Leonard Woolley? 1922 to 1928, Woolley worked in the city out of the Chaldees, known in Genesis, and Woolley discovered thick layers of, of water-laid clay in the history of the, the city of Ur. And, uh, of course, folk jumped in that right away, so that's the flood in Genesis, you know, but it wasn't really necessarily that. But it was evidence of flood, and if, if it was fire and you saw a layer of ashes, the city had been destroyed in war. Are you with me so far? So uh, what happened in the 19th century is that under the work of the archaeologists, they began to think maybe the Bible wasn't a figment of the, the writer's imagination after all, and that there were settlements there. And they discovered, for example, in the case of Abraham, that uh, when he went out, as God called him out, he wasn't crawling out of his cave in the year uh, 1900 or something like that before Christ. He left a swinging city. Out of the Chaldees was well past its best in 2000 BC. In fact, its zenith was something like 3000 BC, and they had two story tenements and mains drainage in out of the Chaldees uh, at the time of Abraham. Well, you think of it, in our civilization in the 19th century AD, the people in Edinburgh were emptying their chamber pots out the window shouting, Garde Lou, and the whole mess of Glasgow, we can't even begin to describe it. Um, it was really bad. Um, they were very advanced. And of course, if you're an archeologist, there's two wonderful places to look. One is the Royal Cemeteries, where a lot of the artifacts of an ancient civilization can be found. And another place you can look at with great profit is the rubbish dumps. <laughs> I also worked in the cleansing department once, and they <laughs> you can tell an awful lot about people from the rubbish that they leave. How many empty bottles there are outside that door, and so on and so forth. I don't mean milk bottles. Anyway, um, Abram was born into that kind of situation. Um, and the principles in the Old Testament are principles we can accept. They are relevant to us today. The things that happened to Abraham can be lessons for us today, and Joseph, and Samuel, and uh, David, and Jeremiah. So we shouldn't hesitate to read the Old Testament. The old is in, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. What is latent in the Old Testament becomes patent in the New Testament. Martin Luther said, the Old Testament is the cradle in which the Christ child is laid. And so we shouldn't be hesitant at all at looking at the Old Testament. And we find encouragement, beautiful artifacts, Beautiful testimonies to an ancient civilizations. Things that confirm what God tells us in his word. Um, so that Paul can write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, all scripture, including pasagraphy, means all scripture, Old Testament as well as new, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, in fact, is the word he uses. 
Either God breathed out, that's expiration, or God breathed into it, that's inspiration. Um, and in Second Peter, uh, the writer Peter, we think, says about the folk who wrote the Old Testament, men they were, but driven along by the Holy Spirit, they wrote the words of God. And so we look at these Old Testament characters for principles of godliness, long-term and uniform. And we look at Abraham and we see in him an exercise in godly living. An exercise in godly living in four parts, which apply to us today. First one is recognition. First thing we want to note is that he admitted his need. God spoke to him through his family and through his circumstances and directly from the instruction of God. And it tells us about his, his ancestors. And at the end of chapter 11, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and his daughter-in-law Sarah, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldees um, that's the great city of Ur in Mesopotamia between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And they set out and they came to Haran and they settled there and after Terah's death, they moved on. We all come through terrible experiences sometimes in our lives. One of them is bereavement. And they say the three major causes of nervous breakdown are bereavement, divorce, and flitting. <laughs> Moving house quite often drives people off their trolley um, and into depression. And God comes and speaks to us through the circumstances of our families. Sometimes we feel upset because we can't muscle in and help folk and, and uh, interfere in folks' life in our families. But God quite often speaks through our family circumstances. And he spoke to Abraham. Oh, Terah had died. It was a death in the family. Um, and God had been speaking to Abraham. It tells us at the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, um, he'd been speaking to Abraham for, for some time. And in many of our lives, God has spoken to us time and again. And sometimes we don't listen to him. Sometimes we ignore what he says. Sometimes we just say, oh, I know better than that, and we go our own way and discover in the long term what God says is more important than what we think. And so here God spoke to him. And even today, God speaks to people. That's one of the questions the Jehovah's Witness asks. If you're in a, a debate with a Jehovah's Witness, witnesses, They'll say to you, do you think God still speaks to people today? And you're a bit of a, you're in a cleft stick because you might say yes and say, ah, well, he spoke to Joseph Smith and so on and so forth. Um, or he, he, that's the Mormons, of course, or he spoke to Judge Rutherford and so on. If you say no, say, ah, but now we'll teach you a new truth. God has spoken to and you're, you're, beat, you're beating whatever angle you seem to take. Um, but God still speaks to people today, and he still guides us. He guides us. 
And he guides us in various ways. He can guide us through prayer. And not just emergency prayer. Leighton Ford, in one of his books, he says that a lot of folk have what he calls a whole porter concept of God, that you only turn to God when your baggage is too heavy. And it's as if you whistle up the whole porter to come into your life and lift your baggage. He says that's not a proper way to think of God. We should open our lives to God, ask God to speak, bring our problems to God, bring our needs to God, bring our families to God through prayer and through Bible reading. God uses this word to speak to us. God still speaks to people today. And sometimes it doesn't seem worthwhile. There was a lady who, who, who taught her son to go down to the river and bring, him, bring her back a basket of water. <laughs> and he went down and she said, away back and try again, you know, and he came back a few times. And he said, I haven't got any water to give you out of the basket. The water just runs out. He said, but look how clean the basket is. <laughs> And when we read the Bible, God has a cleansing function in our lives. And he speaks through the Bible. Through guidance. Our guidance comes through prayer. Our guidance comes through Bible reading. Our, our guidance comes through circumstances. That's the third thing. Our, our, our guidance comes through circumstances. You find yourself in a circumstance and you know that's where God wants you to be. And guidance comes to us, fourthly, through good advice from Christian friends who offer you advice and you pray about it and you read your Bible and you think, hey, that's right, okay. That was good. That was helpful. That was supportive. That was directive. Um, God guides us through prayer, Bible reading, circumstances, and the good advice of Christian friends. And we need God. God made us for himself. We have this capacity to respond to God. If you took away these lights, lovely lights in this church, haven't they? If you took away the lights and put up potatoes there or turnips or something instead of light bulbs. Um, and then switched on, you wouldn't get any light. <laughs> but you know, we have within us the potential for light. And God can switch us on and illuminate our lives by the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus becomes a reality to us. And we don't think of him simply as somebody fulfilling a calendar of Lent, but someone who speaks to us every day by his Holy Spirit. So there's recognition. Admit your needs. And Abram did and got going. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And then you get the word in verse 4. So Abraham left. <laughs> he obeyed God. So there was recognition and then there's renunciation. Admit your need. Renunciation. Abandon your past. Don't copy its style, but learn its lessons and move on. 
to the sphere that God has for you. We can get very comfortable. We had a minister in our church once called Brunton Scott. You ever heard of Brunton? His dear wife's away home to be with the Lord. We were up at the funeral in Perth a few weeks ago. And Brunton used to say, he <laughs> uh, was a fantastic man, Brunton Scott. You say, are you quite comfortable in your semi-detached with your nice car and your nice family and your nice bank account? <laughs> Have you ever thought that God meant to kick you in the pants and send you in a new direction? And that sometimes happens. It happened to, to Abram. Terah died. And Abram got going in a new direction. Maybe God's speaking to some of you tonight. He wants to move you in a new direction. And what you have to do is renounce, renounce your past and go the way God has, has, has directed you. That's wonderful. And in, in the Old Testament, there's a word we translate repent or return. Uh, it's only repentance three times in the Old Testament. In other words, repentance is a verb. It's not a noun, as I learned in Postle Primary School from my primary six teacher, Mr. Tommy Thompson. <laughs> what is a noun? What is a verb? What is an adverb? And he would uh, maybe grab you by the ear. <laughs> What's a noun? A naming word, sir, you know. What's a verb? A doing word, sir, you know and all that. Well, it's a verb. Repentance is dynamic. Repentance is active. Repentance is responsive. Um, and it's a verb throughout the Old Testament. And it means to change our mind, which implies a change of our direction. In, in Greek, in the New Testament, it's metanoia, change of mind. Like the man that met the Irishman in the road. He says, Excuse me, sir, is this the way to Belfast? He says, sure, and it is if you turn around and go in the opposite direction. <laughs> God sometimes gives us an about turn in our lives. And he did that. A new direction. Renunciation. Abandon your past and go where God guides you in a new direction. Here's it. The third one's resolution. Accept God's plan. Admit your need, abandon your past, accept God's plan. Accept it willingly. Accept it happily. Accept it strengthened by his call that what you are doing is in his will. And so he promises him. Verse 2 of chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Isn't that terrific? We used to sing about that. Make me a blessing to someone today. And uh, he accepted God's plan. And he became a blessing. And he had a name change. Quite often in the Old Testament, uh, there's a name change. A, a, a kind of symptom of change in a person's life. It was Avram, if you notice the English text, Abram. Avram means tall, exalted, 
Father, Ab, Av in Hebrew is a father. Avram, high father, meaning exalted father. And then he becomes Avraham, which means father of a crowd, father of a multitude, father of a nation. And that nation was the Jews. How odd of God, Hilaire Belloc writes. How odd of God to choose the Jews. <laughs> and yet he chose the Jews. They are his people. I will make you into a great nation. And God has used the Jews over many centuries as the vehicle through whom the Messiah came, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's taught us so much through Judaism. He's the father of a crowd. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Isn't that good? We know folk who are a blessing. I was reading this week about a man called Adoniram Judson. Have you ever heard of him? Adoniram Judson was a missionary in the 18th century. He was an American. And he and his wife were going to India as missionaries. The first, about, I think it was 1726, he went out to India. And he and his wife, I don't want to boast about this, but they became Baptists. On the, on the voyage out to India. <laughs> and they got baptized by immersion on the ship. <laughs> and they got immediately redirected. You're not going to India, you're going to China. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to Burma. That was it. You're going to Burma. And Burma was a terrible place to be going. When they got there, the only place they could get a house was in the execution square. And to watch daily execution and torture just beside where they were living. And his wife died. First wife died. A child died. He married again. His second wife died. He was put in prison for 17 months and was tortured more or less daily because of his Christian belief. What did he do? Well... He accepted God's plan for his life. He translated the Bible into Burmese. Terribly, terribly difficult language, I'm told. And he produced an English Burmese dictionary, despite all his hardships. And he had his New Testament under his pillow. <laughs> and his, his whole health was wrecked, and he'd gone through all this stuff and he was, he was home, and they sent him on a cruise uh, to try and improve his health. And he died in the ship and was buried at sea. What did he leave behind? Well, he left behind a Burmese church of 7,000 people. And the Bible in Burmese. And an English Burmese dictionary. He accepted God's plan. Now, God will probably never call any of us to anything like the suffering that Adoniram Judson went through. But he was resolved to serve the Lord where the Lord took him. And he served the Lord in Burma. What a wonderful testimony. 
And Abraham suffered a lot too. Um, and the Lord had to deal with him. He had problems in the family through his nephew Lot. And you read about that in chapter 13 um, of Genesis. But he resolved whatever happened, he would obey God's call and go where God sent him. He had problems with his wife. You know one of the problems with his wife? She was too good looking. <laughs> she was a lovely looking woman. When he went into Pharaoh's court, oh dear. Uh, the Egyptians saw this beautiful woman. He said, see, you're my sister. You, know? you read, read the narrative of the Old Testament. are fascinating. Um, he had problems with his wife being too good looking. <laughs> problems with his nephew. All sorts of problems. But he resolved to accept God's plan. That's the third thing. Recognition. Admit your need. Renunciation. Abandon your past. Number three, Resolution. Accept God's plan. Number four, and you know you're getting to the end, uh, regulation. Agree with God's promise. Agree with God's promise, which is wonderful. He had to walk with God. He was a man of faith. He was the father of the faithful. That's one of his titles. The father of the faithful. And in fact, when you read into the New Testament in Romans chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11, Abram's linked up with us in Romans 5, verse 6, I think it is. Uh, Romans 5, verse 6. He said, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, which is wonderful. But he also says in the same chapter that we walk as Abraham walked. We walk in the steps of Abraham. The man... Whom God credits righteousness apart from works is blessed. Is blessed in chapter 4, sorry, of, of uh, Romans. Um, so then he's the father of all who believe in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, not only who are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised, chapter 4, verse 12. Walk. Remember, uh, we've been away last weekend, and, and uh, the, the fellowship we're with, we, ba we baby boys, you know, one of them started walking last weekend. There was great cheers in the camp at this wee boy starting walking. I remember my own wee boy in the, the space between the living room and the kitchen in the Buckhaven Mans, number six, Brown Street, Buckhaven. There was a wee space, and one day I said to Finley, Finley, walk like a, walk like a penguin. And I walked like a penguin, and he walked behind me. And Paul says, <laughs> we walk in step with faithful Abraham. What did he mean? I mean, that was centuries ago. That was out of the Chaldees. We live in modern Airdrie. 
What did he mean? Well, you see, Abraham believed that God was the God who brought life from the dead. Twice, at least in his career, it's obvious in the text that that's what happened. First of all, in the matter of the birth of Isaac, he said, Abram, Sarah's going to have a son, and he's going to be the one of the line of the faithful. Um, and, well, Abram and Sarah too, because she was doing her keyhole kate at the flap of the tent, you know, and uh, <laughs> the Glasgow children would say, Aye, you wish. <laughs> Ninety-year-old, you're kidding. <laughs> Aye, you wish. <laughs> but it happened. And Isaac came along, and she laughed at the thought of having Isaac. So when he was born, she called him Yitzchak. Ha-ha. <laughs> Laughter. Laughing boy. <laughs> and it says Abram was strong in faith. Hebrews 11 tells you about that. Where's, where's Hebrews? Oh, it's in here before James, isn't it? Uh, chapter 11. And it says, Abram considered him faithful who had made the promise. He was strong in faith. He reasoned that God could raise the dead. And he, in the, the writer of the Hebrews uses the second indication that Abram believed in life from the dead. Just like God could bring life from a dead womb of an old woman. And Isaac was born. So later on in Genesis 22, Abram takes Isaac up the Mount, Mount Moriah. And when you work out the sums, some of the old Bibles used to have pictures of a week a wee rosy-cheeked boy going up the mountain with Abram. He was at least 20 years old when he went up the mountain with Abram. He could have shown the old man a clean pair of heels, but he sensed the call of God in his father's life, and he obeyed him, even to the extent of going to lie down on an altar built for sacrifice. And Abram believed God, even if he plunged that sacrificial probably a flint knife into his son's heart, which seemed a total denial of all that God had said to him, that God could raise him from the dead. Isn't that amazing? No, it's not amazing. It's a, it's a precursor of all Christians and their belief in God. Because we believe in a God who brings life from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is not um, a figure of idealism and fairy tales. The Lord Jesus Christ is a real Savior who died for us and rose again. We don't revere a dead hero as Christians. We worship a risen Lord Jesus Christ. In Kirkintilloch Baptist, we once had a guest speaker, and he was the man from the Upper Clyde Shipbuilders, the communist guy. What was his name? William. Hmm? Jimmy Reed. Jimmy Reed came along. And he gave us a row. He says, you Christians, and he was brought up a Roman Catholic, I believe. He says, you Christians, he says, you don't preach the full gospel. <laughs> he said, in your Bible and Acts, every time the death of the Lord Jesus is mentioned, 
His resurrection is also mentioned. You slew the prince of life, but God raised him from the dead. And that's the basic fact of Christianity. We worship and serve and believe in not just a savior who died for us and shed his blood, and that's wonderful, and paid the penalty for our sins, but we worship a savior who's alive. And Airdrie tonight, in the hearts of his people who believe in a risen Savior. And so we walk like soldiers at God's pace in continuum with God. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful God. Even back in Genesis chapter 12, we find this wonderful God at work in the life of Abraham. And in the mercy of God, we too can experience the life of faith as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this precious time together. We thank you for those in the past who have inspired us by their Christian service and obedience and faith. We thank you for Abraham tonight and all that he says to us in our modern age. So, Lord, help us not to be these cynical wiseacres who sit uselessly, feeling that our lives are of no value. But we thank you, Lord, you've put us into this world to serve you, to glorify you, and to believe in our risen Savior as Abraham did. So, Lord, bless us this week, whatever the week brings to us, and help us to know your presence and experience your power and see your blessing through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.